KBTC, a viewer-supported community service of Bates Technical College. From KBTC Public Television Studios in Tacoma, Washington, it's the Northwest Now podcast. Each week, we take a closer look at the people and issues that affect all of us here in Western Washington. So sit back, relax, and join the conversation with your host, Tom Lason. With a doctorate from the UW and two masters from Harvard, Seattle author and activist Max Hunter knows a thing or two about achievement. But he says for black men, walking the line between the street and striving for excellence isn't the obviously desirable journey you might think it is. Our discussion with the author of Speech is My Hammer, Black Male Literacy Narratives in the Age of Hip Hop is next on Northwest Now. Dr. Max Hunter played the game as a drug dealer, but overcame his ambivalence about literacy and academic achievement to escape that life and enter a world that has only entered through accomplished literacy and intellectual achievement. But squaring black culture, ideas of black manhood, and his inner desire to know things did not come easily, and that's what this book is about. The book is not easy. It takes a deep, not just experiential, but also academic background in black history, black narratives, black culture, and black ideals of masculinity to really unpack and understand. I am not sitting here telling you I get it all or was even able to get through it all. But what I can do is ask Dr. Hunter to help us unpack it, and it's something he's been doing in venues and classrooms and book signings all across the country. Dr. Hunter, thanks so much for coming to Northwest Now. Um, your book's very interesting, um, very dense. It's, I wouldn't say it's an easy read, but it's an interesting read because it's an academic piece, but it's also your story. Right. And that's where I want to start with a little, uh, a little bit here is about your story. Where do you come from? Give us a, a brief overview of how you got to where you are today. Well, so uh, that's always a tough question because I have a very convoluted path, as you know, to where I am today. Um, but That's what I, makes it interesting. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I, uh, I was born in, in, in San Diego, in the southeast San Diego, in a, the equivalent to um, a, a, a black Queen Anne in Seattle. Uh, uh, my mom was a single mom. She was, um, she was a teenager when she had me. Uh, she was a junior in high school, you know, between her senior, her junior and senior year. And so, you know, um, I had the benefit of growing up in America's finest city, but we moved to L.A. My dad lived in L.A. and my mom worked in L.A. And so I spent a lot of time with me and my brother with like babysitters and, uh, you know, uh, with a young single mom who was trying to like party and do it, what everybody was doing in the 60s and 70s. And so um, it was a very interesting experience. My school there, uh, Manchester Avenue Elementary School, uh, we just recently visited it with my children so they could see the kind of environment I grew up in. And, and I looked up the school, when I looked it up, it had the literacy and uh, math literacy and English literacy rates, and they were both below 40%. I think uh, English literacy was like 29%. Of course, there's a lot of um, Latinx folks living in the community, but still yeah. shocking in the math literacy was something yeah. like 33%. Uh, there wasn't a lot of gang violence there when I when I was there, but um, it was just emerging. And my mom, she made a decision that she needed to be either a mother or 
party girl, and she decided to move us back to San Diego near where my grandmother was. Yeah, and your grandma was very instrumental in your life. She really stimulated your early move toward literacy, it sounded like. Right, right, because, you know, in, in um, you know, I mentioned in the book that I had a very, and I don't know where I, where I got it from, sort of, ro even as a little kid, romantic idea of uh, education and schools and what they were like. Um, but but when I ended up at school, you know, the first day at school, within the first 30 minutes, I get punched in the back by this girl who was bigger than me, and I had never had a fight or altercation, and I didn't know how yeah. to respond to it. And um, But then, you know, in a, this large school, it was more warehousing us as kids than really trying to educate us. And I don't think, that's not to indict the the administration or the teachers, it was just the scale of the- It's, it's uh, the scale, it's a factory. Right. Yeah. And so I didn't, I wasn't really exposed to- With a Harvard degree and two masters and all you've been through, are you still surprised that zip code matters? When you go back and visit that school in 2023, are you still a little stunned by that? Uh, yes and no. I mean, it's, it's um, stunning because my kids all go to independent school. They're getting great education. I have degrees in education, so I think about it. Um, it's stunning because, you know, the educational system is a mosaic of different kinds of schools. And so, like, when I was growing up, and I mentioned it, like, the black Muslims had their own schools, and they were doing a wonderful job. Black nationalists also had co-ops and stuff, and they were doing a wonderful job. Um, but public schools, I guess, I... I now that I really think about it a little bit more deeply, public schools, whether they're in L.A., Detroit, Philly, or Seattle, because the public school system in Seattle, that was the most shocking to me when I came here. And such in 88, was such a kind of middle class or, and working class city where the kids were um, not graduating. And I met, I've met a number of kids who grew up with more structure and more support and resources than I ever had, and they're barely literate. Yeah. So yeah. zip codes matters, but there's so many different factors that, as I touch on in the book, that shape yeah. our relationship to literacy. I want to speak briefly, too, in terms of background, your experience with the legal system. You weren't always on the pathway to a, a doctorate from Harvard, two masters, and becoming a college professor. I mean, you had some side trips when you're young. Yeah, well, one of the challenges was when I first got into college, because I, I had just dropped out of college, and I had... Um, and I was working at Juvenile Hall when I got on the other side of the law, really. And so, um, but what happened was I, the two schools I was looking at, UCSD and San Diego State. So San Diego State, where I ended up, was in proximity to my home, so I could stay in the dorm. So I would go back and forth to school. So I would go from one culture of the ivory tower and then back into the hood, literally, where mm -hmm. kids were selling weed outside of my house and then event or apartment and then cracking. I still lived in the projects. And so then when I, um, when I ended up needing to go to work full time to, to be able to get back in school and pay tuition, well, this guy I knew from street racing, and he, I could use his name, Mari Cole, he was living downstairs with a girlfriend. He invited me to watch the game with the meat roll tacos. And um, while he was watching the game, he was selling powder cocaine, and he made $600. Yeah, there's an easier way. Yeah. And... I knew either he was trying to recruit me as a customer or a colleague, and I ended up being a colleague. Now, he's a scientist. Now, you know, he was working at the Animal Vivarium at Script, cleaning up cages, rat cages, but now he's created all this technology, and he's a, you know, brainiac. 
And so we went through the 80s and we, um, you know, I ended up from just, you know, selling, you know, small amount of cocaine to trafficking, co trafficking coke all the way to D.C. Yeah. And back and from New York and Boston. And, and so. But you look back at that and say, thank God. What, what turned the corner? What was the thing that, that said, you know, I'm not going to live this life. This isn't going to be me. Well, I was always, you know, so there's a couple of things. I was raised in a way from my grandmother and her, even before she, she became a Pentecostal when I was in middle school. So even before her religious, serious religious conversion, because she was always kind of religious, I knew, um, I knew better. Uh, my Boy Scout master, Leo Triplett, uh, my fifth grade teacher, Sister Jean, who just came to visit me and my boy. Their voices were in your head. Yeah. But <laughs> what happened was the, the, the adrenaline and everything of it all and having money and the oh, best yeah. life. Mm -hmm. But I also could see the impact it was having on the community. And as I was moving up the food chain to get distance myself from it, I was still was literate. So I was reading the New York Times, the LA Times, and seeing the changes in laws. I was seeing how the police were beginning to put together these cases. And I knew the jig was up, right? Yeah. And, but when people- And you were having an intellectual awakening through that reading. Through reading, and then also, I was spending a lot of time on college campuses. So I was mm -hmm. at, uh, uh, at Howard University, I was at Georgetown University, Georgetown Pub, kicking it, so to speak, with very bright, fun, you know, nerdy, but cool yeah. black guys. And I, I began to see a different model. You know, I'll never forget, I was in, uh, I think it was, it was a Georgetown kid came over to Howard and we were drinking beers on a Friday and he was talking about libations to Bacchus and all, you know, yeah. using Latin and all this stuff. And I was just like, you know, and, and the, one of the things I mentioned in my book that was a real epiphany for me was when I was walking through Georgetown because I had clients in Georgetown. Um, you know, I wasn't like one of these street dealers. Yeah. Uh, so I was kind of hiding as a student, pretending concierge to be a service. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I was there one night after having dinner with some of my clients and, you know, do, doing whatever we did. And I was walking around Georgetown and I'm, I'll never forget looking in the library around midnight and students were studying. And it's almost like it was a voice or I don't know what it was. Something said, if you work as hard in school as you are doing now to build this business. Yeah. You will be successful. Yeah. And it was this I think it took a while to kind of right the ship. But part of what I tell people, and I don't want to neglect this, is because I think it's important, because usually in America there's this epif this real big, uh, you know, metamorphosis that happens. Yeah. But I say, I grew up. So I, w I, yeah. was, I started college too young, at 17 for yep. me. Mm -hmm. I couldn't handle, really it was a breakup with a girlfriend that kind of took me out uh, for a while. And then I'm... As I get, as I near 23, 24, I'm like, wait a minute. Yeah. This is the next um, 50 years. Really? Yeah. yeah. And then, yeah. you know, I was thinking about things now, like <clears throat> I've mentioned, you know, I was mentioned to um, other people being able to advocate for my kid, being on a board of a private school, being on a committee of a private school, being on a board that gives away money, being able to advocate for people. I knew that wasn't going to happen no matter how much money I made outside the yeah, regular. If you, you know, weren't like, on the right side of the yeah, law. so I yeah. was like, I was thinking about. I, 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 there was part of me that wanted a respectable life. I, I knew I wanted to have a family. I knew I wanted to be able to support my kids in the way that I have, and so I, I, I knew things had to change. Yeah, and you, I think, I think saying you grew up is really captures captures yeah. it. I want to speak about one of the big themes in your book: this ambivalency 
ambivalence and double consciousness that that you as a black male feel you had to live that life navigating these two worlds right. being able to go to the hood and get along there but also be a student at harvard and um you know to, to develop that 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 passion you had for literacy and having to live this double life my first reaction when i read all of this from my perspective was what a darn shame you know, what a, what a dang shame that somebody like you has to, has to put up with that. And maybe that's one of the big problems with, with the country. But then I'd also said, no, this is really high school. It's jock, nerds, athletes, the, the, the weirdos. Every, everybody goes through this. But in the black community, you had your own experience where you were either hip in the hood or you were a literate guy, kind of an elite intellectual. And it was hard to live that double life. Well, you know, in reality, it was, it, it was more complex because, because, you know, and I talk about it in my book. I mean, I mean, you have it and you, you've hit on it. I experienced, you know, I went to Claremont High this, the same year they wrote Fast Times at Richmond High. So mm -hmm. you watch the movie. It was, you know, there was the jock, the stoners, the surfers, yeah. uh, right. the skateboarders, the, yeah. you know, all of that. And, but, you know, when I, when I was a small kid, there was, there were black intellectual bookish guys in the community and then uh the high school i went to lincoln high I mean, my neighborhood high school was lincoln high marcus allen came out of there there were like scholars jocks like marcus allen mm -hmm. and then there was you know the gang members were minimal but what happened over time what i saw happen with hip-hop and gangster rap and as the drug culture became more and more you know entrenched in uh the black community was this the emergence of this hyper masculine yeah identity so then you even know. if you can't read don't let anybody know no you're right. and that's code switching that's right part of this how you're talking to one group you can how you're down to the boys in this setting but can but yeah. not in another yeah and it you know on some levels an opportunity and is is actually you know a lot of people revel in being able to participate in both cultures and code switch but at the other on other instances in day-to-day -day life and trying to navigate things um trying to figure out what to wear when you take your kid to the hospital so they could, you could get the right service in the ER, right? Or, uh, yeah. you know, recently, like I, so post-COVID, I went back on the market and I was applying for jobs and I was showing up in suits like you. And a lot of the jobs that I was applying for was related to diversity and stuff like that. So when the, the, the everybody soon came on, they had daishikis and all of that. And I wasn't getting hired because I was just looking a little too, I think, square and academic. So what I did was, and my wife knows this, I went out to Mama Africa, picked up some of the African guard, put it on. I got hired right away. How do you get to authenticity, though? How does a person who has to navigate this to, to be able to speak in the barbershop or whatever it is and, and, and maybe live in a neighborhood where there's a gang influence but also wants to pursue literacy and has this awakening and is reading books and, and, wants, and wants a master's and see a better way for their life? Why, what are the barriers to authenticity? Is there anything in the culture that's... Um, you're, are you criticized as a, as a literate black man, criticized in that culture? Um, is it fatherlessness? Because I don't think any father would say, hey... I don't want you pursuing all this literacy and education. I want you over here in the hood. Um, well, they wouldn't say How it, do you diagnose They don't that? say it like that. Nobody <laughs> says that, yeah. right. right? It's the, you know, like when you're like me, I never forget, uh, as I was dating girls, somebody saying, you're too nice. Yeah, not bad enough. You're not bad enough. Uh -huh. You know, uh, <laughs> Tony, Tony Jones sweet-talked me. i never forget it when Kim Earl told me that, and I was like, sweet-talked? What's that? You know, he put his game down. He, he was so for for me, 
part of what I think the long-term answer is and kind of short-term answer, and I, and, I, and I think I see it in my children is, you know, you have to be reflective about who you are mm -hmm. and what you want and be given permission and affirmed in that. And the biggest permission comes from me. Yeah. So then now, because part of it Did is, you is we're, social, we're social creatures, so we yeah. want to be, we want to have friends and be liked right. and admired, right? In both communities. In both communities, because yeah. I'll never forget again, and uh, Kim Rose uh, went to visit uh, her house, and her, uh, her uncle was one of the OG gangsters, like really started our yeah. gang set. And I was, I tried to say what's happening and I used the G, I had a G. <laughs> and they <laughs> fell out, right? So then, you know, that next day I was standing in the bathroom mirror, what's happening? Yeah. What's happening? You know, practicing. Golly, mister. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. So, and so, but you know, now, I mean, I, I think part of what helps is I have all these credentials and so I feel a lot more confident. Do you but, feel like you chase them to make up for that? I chase. You know, the thing is, is now, you know, the thing, so for me, I'm so solid in my identity. And part of it is- I mean, you were, this you were okay before you got your doctorate, you know. You were worthy. I know, but you know, we live in a society that, you know, you know, people are like, who are you? You know, oh, Dr. Max Hunter, and they treat you a little bit different. Mm -hmm. but, it, but they also can resent that too. But, you know, I think for me, just, and I've had people, ironically, like uh, Dr. Danny Scarborough, who was the first person I know to come forward and say they were dying of HIV AIDS. I was in a dance troupe in college when I first went there. And Danny was a choreographer, and he you know, was the chair of the African American Studies Department. He's this tall, beautiful black man. But, and he never was like out of the closet like we think about it today, but he was free. Yeah. And so when you meet people who are free, it gives you permission you, you know, when I used to be like in his classes, because he also taught literature, and I first read Langston Hughes with him, and I was like, how does a person get to be that free? Yeah. I want to be yeah. free. Because like when I read your book, I can hear you struggling with freedom, struggling with identity, struggling who you wanted to be, um, trying to live in multiple worlds. Um, what's your advice today to, to young black men you speak with who have read a lot? They, they, they want to be accepted. Um, they want to be down to the boys, but they also want to pursue something and they see a better life. Is it still difficult or you know, have I, we gotten I, better? I, it's on some level, you know, like because of social media and other, you know, other social, you know, like Facebook and Instagram, all that stuff. There are communities, blurs, black nerds. Um, there's tons of black academics and artists who are nerdy, what we would call nerdy. I don't really like that term, but. You can find your people, though. You can find your people. And, you know, I've been surprised that Urban League had a, uh, a black men's health event uh, a couple of years ago when I first took on this job for Seattle Children's at Odessa Brown. So I, I went over there, and there were a number of talks around different health issues, mental health, as you can imagine, uh, fitness. And then at the end, there was a meal. And I expected people, like they usually do on a Saturday, to run off. And everybody hung back. They wanted to fellowship. Nothing but very bright black men who hiked, kayaked, and they were not um, apprehensive about sharing what their interests were and trying to connect with other people around those interests. So yeah. I think there's spaces in the community. You just have to find those spaces. When I kind of tried to read through the copy in your book <clears throat> to the best of my ability, a couple of things that kind of in my own thing that really came up were, one, when it, when it comes to a, a young 
African-American person trying, trying to come up, find themselves, figure out what groups they want to be when, and, and, and struggle to be in several groups. Right. Um, to be a, one was um, that we really, I think, doesn't, this doesn't particularly affect any racial group, but um, the lack of ritual that we have in becoming men. Mm-hmm. Um, the past, we really don't have the mm-hmm. traditional passages mm-hmm. to, ma- to manhood. What, mm-hmm. what is, when does that happen? When you get a driver's license, when you go into the army? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I don't yes. know. L- layered in over the top of this in, in not just African-American culture, but is, is an issue with fatherlessness. Mm-hmm. Again, where that message of here's who you need, here's who you, I see you being. I accept you. I, I love you whether you have a master's or not. Right. Let's let's pursue. I see this in you. Let's pursue that. You know, a good dad. Right. Um, are those? Am I am I touching on something there? That's yeah. Important? Well, you know, in my book, I talk about the Moynihan report that came out in 1964, 65, just when I was born. So I say I was born under the shadow of Man- Ma- uh, Moynihan report. And in that uh, report, he talks about the black community has become a tangled pathology. And part of what he part of that pathology that's implied is this these um, emerges. You know single parent headed households, 70% right. of black families yeah. are in them. And um, and the father supposedly being absent and the literature on the father's presence or absence is, is um, I think, not, it, it's unambiguous saying black fathers are really engaged, but there's, there's, a, a, there's an issue there, but what's ha- from my perspective, because of the culture wars and because of other factors, it's very difficult to have that conversation in the community. But as someone who grew up without a father and had to, like I said, I grew up and what I tell other people was once I grew up and stopped partying mm-hmm. and using drugs and dealing drugs, yeah. I had to raise myself. I said, that came from you though, the internal it, locus of control with right. you. You were lucky, I think, that yeah. you found that. But I look at my kids who all are you know, I, I think high people would say I'm not bragging. Very high achiever. No, go ahead. <laughs> but you know, my my son. You know, he's in uh, Harvard. You got well, how many kids? So, in Harvard? so you know, I I have two at Harvard. One graduating this year. She'll be yeah. working at Goldman Sachs, Smith Hunter, and then August Hunter, who's going to be there two more years without a city, sister for her, and then Keith, who or Adashi Hunter, who's going to be uh, going next year um, if he doesn't do a, a some growth experience in between. Yeah. But his, his college essay was all about this because for his other siblings, their sense of identity and purpose were crystal clear. Yeah. And I'll never forget um, the night, you know, we, we have a nightly prayer, usually as a family, but for some reason he and, it was he and I because maybe they were off playing soccer or something. And he, he asked me to pray with him to find his purpose. Mm. And so it was around this process of us reading the, some of the books in here, me stacking them up for him and then helping him, first of all, affirming him. I've never, my kids are biracial. I've never said you're black or Japanese or this yeah. or that. I let them figure it out. And as they figure it out, I'm there to say, keep going, mm-hmm. you're okay. Cause the world sends, you know, and it's just part of the human experience the world will always send negating messages. And so it's really important you know, one of the things, I'm a kind of a religious person is in, in Genesis, in, in the beginning of the creation, at the end of every day, the creator said, and this is good. He blessed mm-hmm. it, right? And I think we need- Well, getting your father's lives. blessing apart from religion is a big piece of right. this. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I know, I've heard of other men who came from different backgrounds who experienced that. Or never got it. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. that's, that's more common, mm-hmm. even when the father is present, right? Yeah. Yes. So it's significant. You know, I take my my fatherhood stuff 
I could be pretty evangelical about it because the, you know, when you look at where I came from in San Diego, like literally we live, my mom's first apartment was on uh, Euclid and Division, a place called, uh, or an Imperial, behind a taco shop, and it's called the Four Corners of Death. Yeah. You know, we grew up in Vegas, Methodist apartments, and you ask people, 49th and Logan in San Diego yeah, is ground they know. sewer. Yeah. They know. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, for me to be able to make, to do what I've done in my life is pretty remarkable. But part of that comes out of there were good things in the culture. We were competitive yes. and athletic. And, yep. and, and people were challenged implicitly to, like, do something with their lives. But sometimes, it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But, but what we see with our children in just one generation with me being present, uh -huh. Me and my wife being on the same. I, you know, I could have never imagined. There's just no way. And you know, the story in my book, part of the story, one of the chapters open with me holding my son as he's born, crying because not knowing yep. how I was going to fare. Yep. So, yep. great stuff. Great conversation. Um, I encourage people to uh, continue to listen for you on other interviews and other podcasts, and because uh, I think you have a lot of. It's, it's difficult. There's a lot there. There's a lot there. But there's some, a lot of interesting threads, and I appreciate you coming to Northwest Thank now. Thank you for having me. I want to thank Dr. Hunter for coming to Northwest Now. There's a lot to unpack because of all the layers that go into his experience and the experience of others like him. The bottom line, I do feel like I can say that I think it's a sign of progress that all this can be discussed and that maybe the ultimate dream is that people can be empowered to let go some of the old baggage about whether you can be both smart and cool or manly and artistic. Maybe there's more of a pathway now free of criticism or social judgment that just lets young people be what they want to be, however they want to be. Maybe that's the ultimate expression of freedom and equality.